0: Greetings friends, it is the weekend of Sunday, February 21st. We're continuing in our series and our look at the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Today we pick up and begin chapter 2. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read from the ESV version this morning. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom we are hidden all, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Today, we talk about that life overflowing, the overflowing life found in Colossians Chapter two, the first seven verses. Have you ever asked yourself, what is boredom? I mean, really, why do people get bored? I think that there's a belief, and, and, and I agree with it, that boredom comes as a result of looking to something outside of yourself to keep you excited. We blame our boredom on everything else. There's nothing to do. There's a frequent complaint of certainly my kids, maybe yours as though it were somebody else's fault. But boredom is really our problem. You see, there's something wrong with me. There's no inner resource from which we can draw. Boredom comes when we find ourselves demanding satisfaction from some activity, some person, some something outside of ourselves. It indicates that actually there's a lack within me. And the letter to the Colossians is actually dealing with the problem, if you will, of boredom, of apathy, a lack of vitality. Life had no zest, no no zing, no delight for these Colossian Christians. And that is why Paul seeks in this letter to reveal the true secret of a turned-on life. And it is the discovery of a person who can live within us. And as we talked about last week, as we've already seen the great mystery of the ages revealed in Scripture is Christ in you, Christ in us the hope of glory believers who have discovered this not merely in an intellectual sense but have begun to live on the basis day by day are are seldom bored to be quite frank to them everything is exciting even difficulties and trials are regarded as adventures and they look forward to to how the lord is going to work them out they may feel a sense of risk perhaps even danger, but they also have a sense of excitement and anticipation as they look for God to act. This is why the scriptures often refer to the word riches. Paul frequently makes mention of the riches of the gospel. And in one place, he said that the greatest joy was to declare the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the gospels make a lot of attempts, a lot of mention of treasures. Jesus talked about laying up treasures in heaven. We have within our bodies, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, a treasure in earthen vessels. That is, that it may be evident that the power is not from us, but from God. That inner treasure is what makes the Christian life rich, zestful, worth living. So these letters of of Paul seek always to create a sense of this in, in people to help them understand that the problem The answer to the problem of boredom and apathy is a well of living water, as Jesus put it, springing up from within. That is what will refresh our spirits and save us from perpetual boredom. Hear the words of Paul in the opening verses of this second chapter. I want you to know how strenuously I am exerting myself for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, Paul's purpose for writing is stated very clearly there. He, he specifically wants to enrich their lives, encourage their hearts. And, and enable love to spread throughout the, 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 the congregation, the church. But I don't think we can overlook the process. There is an unfortunate um, chapter division here that separates verse 1 from the closing verse of, of chapter 1. And these two verses actually belong together. In verse 29... Of chapter one, we talked about last week, Paul says this to this end, I labor or I toil struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. And I want you to know how strenuously I'm exerting myself for you. Notice how he calls attention to the effort and the toil he was putting into this matter of bringing the Colossian believers into vitality, into excitement, a sense of adventure. We might ask, how how could a man who is chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day in the city of Rome, some thousand miles from Colossae, so help as to or work rather as to help the Colossians? Paul does not tell us here, but in other places we are given ample information as to what his method is. Earlier in the letter, he talked about laboring continuously in prayer for them. That is one way he toils, he works for them through frequent prayer. And we want to stress again the tremendous importance of praying for one another. We can do all the right things to help someone, but if their attitude is wrong, nothing we do will serve to assist them. What can change that? It is our praying for them. Prayer can change the heart and the mind, the inner attitude. It is a powerful force to transform an atmosphere and make something acceptable when otherwise it would appear to be dull and uninteresting. Paul prayed, agonized is the word here, for the Colossian Christians over and over again, even though he had not personally met most of them. Although it is evident from his letters that the, that he was alert to to every word of information about them, when Epaphras uh, brought news to the to, to Paul in Rome about the church at Colossae, Paul questioned him and, and and pulled out from him all the information he could in order that he might know how to pray specifically for the Colossians. That is an indication of his amazing concern for them. But probably the most strenuous toil, if we will, of Paul on behalf of the Colossians, was to compose these letters. These are extremely powerful and thoughtful lever- letters. God breathed. They, they are not something that he just sort of dashed off effortlessly, although he had a, an incredible mind and was capable of tremendous spontaneous statements of truth. The letters revealed that a whole, whole lot of thought and, and intervention and divine inspiration had gone into them. When did he have the time to think? always felt that he worked through these deep theological statements on occasion when he was perhaps unable to sleep at night. Does that ever happen to you? Perhaps Paul found his chain made sleep difficult, and he used the, the night hours for difficult mental exercises. Notice that Paul's immediate goal is to encourage the hearts of the Colossians and to unite them in love. You know, I'm challenged by that because I think too often I find myself ready to jump on someone and and straighten them out, right? It's, It's a great lesson to see how Paul seeks to lift their spirits first and to cause them to appreciate one another. It indicates that building a relationship with individuals is the true way to go about helping them. Have you ever tried to Help someone only to find that your efforts fell on deaf ears. Well, Paul indicates that the right way to help is to find something encouraging to say first. And none of us want to be corrected by negative approach. None of us. And yet we keep trying to do it over and over, don't we? I keep trying to do it over and over, don't we? Culturally, we keep doing it over and over and over but yet we first need a word of encouragement, as the, as Paul so beautifully demonstrates here. And then when Paul has lifted their spirits, they will be able, he suggests, to experience the excitement of understanding the mystery, which is, and we can't say it enough, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when we grasp what the word of God is saying on how to handle life, it becomes exciting. It puts excitement into living. It gives us it gives us the sense that we're not alone, that we don't have to handle our problems by ourselves or that we don't have to lean heavily on human secular advice, though God often provides help in that way, too. But the main thing is we are reckoning upon the the main thing is, excuse me, are we are we reasoning and are we reckoning upon the wisdom of of Jesus? He put us in a certain situation, and he will work it out as we turn to his word. And out of that word come wisdom and understanding. That's why the scriptures are different than any other book. They say things that are difficult and seemingly incredibly impractical, and yet they are the very essence of realism, of wisdom, and sanity. For instance, in Romans 12, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Okay, let's let's just take it on a really small level. Have you ever tried that in traffic? I mean, this is that is the wisdom Paul is talking about. It's not to stuff our mind with theological ideas, but to discover the secret of how to really handle things, how to stay sane and sober, joyful, thankful in the midst of the pressures and difficulties of everyday ordinary life. And a second reason for Paul's concern is that he is very much aware of how easy it is to miss these hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus by being misled by false teaching. And in these verses, we have the first clear hint of what was threatening the Colossian Christians. And here it is, verses four and five of chapter two. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Fine sounding arguments. Reveal Paul's concern so that they not be easily deceived. This one, this is one of the major problems that we all face. The word for deceived literally translated is to reason beside something. If the target is the truth, there is something alongside it that looks very much like the truth. And one begins to focus upon that rather than the truth. That is one of the favorite weapons of Satan. To be deceived is to think we know that something is right, but it is really wrong. Truth and error look almost the same, but one is counterfeit. We have so many counterfeit and imitation things around. We are used to being deceived and do not feel alarmed about it anymore. Plastic looks like metal. Flowers are made of silk. We are daily touching things that are but imitations of the real thing. But imitations have obvious limitations. And if we start regarding them as real, we are in trouble. And that is what Paul is worried about. And by the way, people that that work uh, in the Secret Service that works with counterfeit currency, let's say, don't don't study counterfeit bills. They study the truth, the real bill, and they know exactly what it looks like so that when something passes that does not look like that, they know it is counterfeit. Wow. How much time do I spend trying to study the counterfeit rather than studying and looking at God's word, the truth? J.I. Packer puts it like this. Sad experience shows that bad theology infects the heart with misbelief and unbelief, the spiritual equivalents of multiple sclerosis. Many who ran well have been progressively paralyzed through ingesting bad theology, and the danger remains. Theological expertise can feed intellectual pride, turning one into a person who cares more for knowing true notions than for knowing the true God. And that is disastrous. This is the progress of evil. That is the story of of drug addiction, of alcoholism, of sexual promiscuity. They seem to offer something new and exciting, but when practiced, they invariably destroy, leaving one, at the end of the road, bored, empty, and despairing. This is also true of personal ambition. The lust for power, the love of fame, the pride of position, all these things are like narcotics. We run after them and we are encouraged by the world to do so. But they're substitutes, they're counterfeits of the real thing. And what Paul desires is that all, you and I, all may discover the real life. This this struggle is, in essence, a struggle between two gods, the great God self and the true God of man, Jesus. We hear a lot about self-realization, self-actualization, self-development, self-discovery, self-esteem, self-love. Self is really a disguised God. It sounds right to us. We do not want to hate ourselves. Scripture talks about that. Yet there is a self that is very wrong. And in the next section of this letter, Paul will tell us what it is and what God has done about it in order that we might be able to enjoy the true freedom that is found only in following and serving Jesus Christ. Little sins are an illusion. They seem to offer more. But if we try it, we will find that we've gained nothing. We've discovered that when I give up the illusion of freedom, I am free to discover the true freedom that is in Jesus Christ. That is the secret excitement in living. The answer to boredom is to reject cheap imitation so we can discover the exciting God whom we serve. There is a note of encouragement here in these words. Paul says there are two things about the Colossians that delight him and encourage him to believe that it will be difficult to deceive them by false teaching in their midst. Here here are his words. Verse 5, chapter 2. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Two things help against being deceived. First, a well-ordered, disciplined life. The spirit of our age says, do whatever you feel like doing. Respond to whatever you like. Deny yourself nothing. Paul, however, delights that the Colossians are orderly, and discipline, they make themselves do right, whether they feel like doing it or not. A disciplined life will always be hard to deceive. Almost any discipline will help us resist error, and Paul compliments the Colossians in their orderly life. It makes them resistant to deceit. Second, the Paul, the, uh, Paul delights to see how firm is their faith in Jesus. They understood clearly that it was Jesus Christ who held them, not them who held Christ. And when they strayed, he would send someone to, to them to point it out to them or stop them by some circumstance that would make it difficult for error to take root. A strong faith in the presence of Jesus is a powerful, powerful, powerful bulwark against being misled. And then Paul closes with an admonition, if you will, which, which what most consider to be one of the greatest passages in all the New Testament, verses six and seven of chapter two. So then, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Here is a guide to an exciting, zestful life. Just as you and I receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, obey him, follow him talk to him, draw on his grace, lean on him, look to him for comfort. That is how to continue to live in him. Three things have happened to us, says Paul. We've been rooted in Christ. These are all passive participles, meaning these things have been done to us. Like a deeply rooted tree, we have been planted in Christ and those strong roots hold us. Secondly, we've been built up in him. Not only are the roots going deep, but we are growing up as well. We're increasing in faith and experience. And then thirdly, we have been strengthened in the faith. We have tested it, put it to the work in our home and in our community. We have had to face problems which were, were tests, and our faith was strengthened by them. And as those three things take place, we're to add one more. We are to be overflowing with thankfulness. Thankfulness. Be grateful to God for everything that he's given us. No matter what it is, have I learned to be thankful in everything? That means that I don't grumble, that I don't complain, that I don't criticize. You see, I can't have it. We can't have it both ways. To be thankful means to find something in every situation for which we can genuinely be grateful. Every situation in the midst of COVID in the midst of what's going on in our lives, and our world, in the midst of all the strife that we see, to find something that we can genuinely be grateful for. The Bible commentator, Dr. Matthew Henry, was once robbed as he walked along a highway. Afterwards, he told his friends that there were four things for which he gave thanks. First of all, he was grateful that he had never been robbed before after many years of, of life. And this was the first time that he had been robbed. And for that, he was truly grateful. Secondly, he said, though they took all my money, I am glad they did not get very much. that was something to be thankful for. Thirdly, he said, though they took my money, they did not take my life. And I'm grateful for that. And finally, he suggested I am thankful that it was me who was robbed. It was I who was robbed and not I who did the robbing. There's a man who had learned how to be overflowing with thankfulness. Have we ever learned to talk to ourselves and ask ourselves questions? If we read the Psalms, we'll often find we're listening to a man talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou so disquieted within me? The psalmist is standing at the mirror, shaving, feeling down, asking himself, what's the matter with you? Why are you like this? It's a good thing to do. When we ask ourselves questions about ourselves, we must also ask, why didn't worse things happen? Look beyond what has occurred and realize it could have been much worse and then discover all the things which God has supplied and which we have been taking for granted his care, his love, the shelter of our home, the fact that we have a little money in the bank, the fact that our children love us or that our parents love us and begin to give thanks for those things. And I think if we do, something's going to happen. We will find ourselves hyped up and excited about everything. We will find life with vitality and excitement, and we will have discovered the answer to boredom. Amen. In closing today, I want to read Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think or even imagine,